You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and today we are so excited to welcome Missouri Williams to talk about her debut novel, The Deloriad. Missouri Williams is a writer and editor who lives in London. Her work has appeared in The Nation, The Baffler, The Believer, Granta, and Five Dials. The Deloriad is her first book. Thank you so much for being here, Missouri. No, thank you so much for having me. Did you want to start by reading us a little something? Give us a welcome us into this world a little bit. Okay, yeah. Um, I will read from the start of the novel, which um is the start, so that makes sense. Um okay, uh prologue manner to future agonies. When Dolores inclined her head to acknowledge the presence of her uncle, the movement dragged her down toward the earth. Her breasts dipped and swung in a low arc and the rest of her droopy fat body scarcely managed to resist. The wheelbarrow in which the others had placed her wobbled dangerously until their uncle grasped its handles of his trembling hands and began to push Dolores away from the encampment and into the forest. The rest of the children watched him go with little feeling, deadened by light and heat. As she rolled down the slope that led to the green border of trees, a great tremor went through her, but Dolores was not able to distinguish between fear and desire, and so she made herself still again and awaited her destiny with the wooden resignation of a sinking merchant ship. Her affinity to the earth was so pronounced that she couldn't wait to be in it, though she would never be able to articulate that in words, the trick of which eluded her, and so Dolores had faced up to the marriage and what the schoolmaster called the dribbling monotony that was promised to her, just as stoically as she'd faced up being born. She bounced along in her melancholy way, as patient as a stone, and Agatha watched her from the ridge above the path, having followed the two of them at a distance since their departure from the camp. She moved forward, still hidden by the dense net of leaves, and squinted down at the pair in the gully below her. Their uncle shuffled along with his unwieldy burden, and the cracked lenses of his glasses repelled the sun. The light bounced away from him, splintering into new delusions, and those bright discs, fixed to the head and the long dry stick of his body, gave him the appearance of a watchtower on the move. It was no surprise to Agatha that their mother had entrusted their uncle with the transporting of Dolores, the success of which was already a source of much speculation among her children, because his loyalty to the matriarch was ancient and unquestionable. At all times he bowed to her stronger will. And then there was Dolores herself and whatever soul remained to her after 19 years of stony submission, although Agatha couldn't find it with her narrowed eyes. The sun slipped through the green canopy above them and moved over her sister's white body. She was a blinding point, all the more blinding given her placement within the bright forest, Sodom of light, and suddenly it was painful to look at her. But this was the last sight that Agatha would have of her sister before she was gone with no guarantee that she would ever come back. And so she blinked the tears from her eyes and committed the image to the vault of her memory scrabbling in the earth with her dirty, restless fingers as if anchoring herself to the damp mulch of the forest floor. The creaking of the wheelbarrow, the whoosh of air as it moved from one side to another, tilting with the weight of her sister's body, her uncle's dry cough. Up on the ledge, watching the pair through the screen of vegetation, Agatha felt as though she were really down there, next to her uncle and the wheezing sound he made as he pushed the wheelbarrow along the rough dirt path, 
and she could smell the sweat pooling in the deep folds beneath Dolores's armpits without having to imagine it. But the sense of herself dispersing, of occupying multiple spaces at once, was something Agatha knew how to dismiss. And so she pushed herself back through the green forest and through the arrow loops of her own dark eyes, all the way into her own dark head, and concentrated on the stupid smile she thought she saw on her sister's lips. Even if she had had legs, Dolores wouldn't have known how to use them to get away. There was a poison in her and the theft of her legs had not been enough for it. Those melted stumps were simply the sign of that greater corrosion, much as the trappings of the church are only there to point to the presence of the God. And it was this hidden thing, not their uncle, that was leading her into the forest. It was the blunt promise of her anatomy, the slack mouth and the round pig eyes, the antiquated languor of her fat white hands, these small acquiescences all pointed to the answer of a question never asked, a great pale feminine yes. Agatha knew all this and knew not to feel sorry for her. Thank you so much for welcoming us into this world. And we talked a lot about the forest. I wanted to ask where you wrote this book, if you wrote any of it like outside or went walking through a forest or things like that, because we're, we're in a camp um, out away from a city and I was curious if you like spent any time outside or in a forest while writing or preparing to write or thinking about this story. Yeah, I did. I spent a lot of time outside actually. Um, so I started writing the Deloriad when I was living in Prague and the city is very empty in the summer. Like it feels as if it's completely deserted. So a lot of the book I wrote while like in my head, I would have my ideas while I was walking around this like incredibly empty city. Um, and it was so hot and so quiet. So I think a lot of the, the solitude and stillness of the book comes from this time in Prague. But in terms of the nature, I would go to green areas around the city and try and imagine what it would be like if those green areas were to take over the city to kind of be in a like an urban space that had been completely swallowed up by by the forest and loneliness. So yeah, I spent a lot of time outside. And then there's a lot of themes like throughout this book that I'll, I'll definitely be asking you about um, in a minute. But so it definitely makes a ton of sense that you were in an empty city that is reflected in so much of this story. But I was hoping you could tell us like where this idea for this story came from, because there are themes that I feel like are explored a lot in storytelling, um, like about the continuation of humanity and um, like the will and striving to continue on and existing. But this is a like a setting and a, a cast of characters that at least I haven't seen it explored in before. And it's a very, you built a, a whole world outside in this camp. And so I'm curious where the seed of this idea came from. Um, I think it, it really first came from that very first image of Dolores, who is one of the matriarch's youngest daughters and has no legs and is like relentlessly persecuted by her siblings. Um, that first image of her in this metal wheelbarrow, acknowledging the presence of a family member, her uncle who's coming towards her, that she's so she's so big and unwieldy and clumsy that even acknowledging the presence of her uncle like uh, upsets the whole balance of her posture so she almost kind of tumbles down so it's it's mm -hmm. it's quite like a difficult opening image but for me it really embodied like the ideas of the Deloriad as a whole which is 
you have all of these characters striving to continue life in their own way and everyone has a vision of what the future should be and a sense of what they want to hold themselves up to that they're continually let down by some fatal flaw in their nature um, and, and things they can't help. Dolores can't help the way she is. And yeah, so it, it kind of, it began with that image and the idea of the relationship between these two sisters and, and like a moment of pure hatred of looking at someone in your family and feeling that you really despise them on every possible level. Um, and I was interested in that dynamic. And I thought I, as I was reading, like I continued to think about like the cruelty of their relationships and especially Dolores and um, how cruel they all just kind of are to each other. And you hadn't, like it hadn't been overtly mentioned yet. I don't think I'd seen the word cruel or cruelty until I got further in. And then I remember seeing it um, and I don't know if I wrote it down, but there was just like at a point, maybe three quarters of the way through, um, I think one of the brothers just overtly mentions how cruel they all are to each other. Like that someone has finally acknowledged it out in the open um, and what that has done to either their attempts to continue or like if it has made them stronger or if it's the thing that will kind of break them. Um, and I, yeah, it I, was, yeah, it was just, I like was waiting for, I was wondering if any of them would actually acknowledge it, like either to themselves or to the others. And they finally did. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because I think that cruelty is something I'm very interested in as a writer. Um, and that there's also a scene where the schoolmaster, the character of the schoolmaster acknowledges this too. He finds someone who's mm -hmm. been killed and he thinks to himself that the history of the world is the history of cruelty. Um, mm -hmm. So I do think it's something the characters become aware of over time, but it's it's something that like the children, for example, that they're so cruel to each other. The way they treat Dolores is obscene. But I've always felt that for them, cruelty isn't something they can necessarily understand. It's all they've ever known. So it's yeah. kind of like becoming aware of cruelty is like a very slow process for them. There aren't many moments of reconciliation in the book, but the moments that there are because of this like dense backdrop of cruelty are kind of more powerful to me for that. Yeah, and you don't like they, like you said, they've been, it's all they've ever known. They've been, it's the backdrop against which they have seen everything. So it just seems common to them um, and it doesn't seem out of the ordinary. Um, and then to that note, when the schoolmaster finds that body out in the city, um, I thought that there were some interesting ideas there about him being more afraid of approaching it when he thought that it was alive or the person was alive. Um, but as soon as he realized that they were dead, there was like less of a fear to approaching it which I thought was an interesting idea in up against the the entire uh like striving for life that everyone is trying to continue life the schoolmaster isn't as much as the matriarch and her children I think but um he that everyone is striving to continue living but the idea of approaching something foreign that is still alive was more fearful to him. Yeah, yeah, I think I think in some ways that's because like 
characters want to continue living, but they only want a very particular kind of life and they're scared of any other form of life that might contradict what they want. So you're right that the, the schoolmaster wants a very different kind of life from the matriarch. So he does not believe in the continuity of the species. He doesn't believe in the family. He's not convinced by any of their, their like self-creation myths. He wants to become a moth. Like he wants to change into an insect and um, experience a new kind of world. And in that scene where he crawls through the city, there's also, he's jealous of the cars. Like he looks at the abandoned cars and he thinks that they might be talking to themselves and, mm -hmm. and living this kind of life that he has no access to. So it's, I, I think with all of the characters in the Deloreal, they're capable of acknowledging different types of life. And the younger children, especially Dolores and Agata, are kind of more open to the possibilities of this new world and like object life, animal life. But the matriarch and the, the older siblings are much more bound up in this idea of human life and the value of human life. And so, yeah, I think the, the, the idea for all of them of approaching or accepting something different from the kind of lives that they have ordained for themselves is, is very terrifying. And that's why the schoolmaster is more comforted by the idea of something being dead than alive. He mm -hmm. doesn't want to discover new life. Well, and I thought that was a, um, there was this one idea that he had during that scene that I wanted to see. I just imagined a whole other story like being built around this idea that the death of humanity was the freedom of everything else. Um, so like he, when he sees the cars and he thinks that they're all, living and he kind of has this idea of well if we all died off then that wouldn't be the end of everything it would be the end of us but the beginning of so many other things which was just such a profound idea that I, I my mind immediately started racing thinking about all of the things that could begin once we ended but that's like as humans human life is what we are preoccupied with um, but the idea that so many other things could begin, and I'll ask you a little bit about endings versus conclusions too, that, uh, but yeah, that, that idea is really interesting. Yeah, I, I think that, um, the idea of like things having lives and obviously animals have lives, but the, the sense that we as people disregard the potential lives of other things has always been like very bound up in my thinking. And so when I was writing the Deloriad, I was really keen to explore other possibilities of life. And like the characters have varying levels of access to this life. Um, I think Dolores in particular, like Dolores and the schoolmaster both also don't have legs. And to me, this kind of like symbolic distribution of like how people would move through space and how they would interact with their world was really important too. Like, because so, so much of like what makes you human and like is it reason is it the ability to speak is it the is is it a connection with your history or your culture is it the ability to walk on two legs like across history people have reached for different definitions of what it means to be human and so I was just interested in kind of messing with that symbolic economy and how I constructed characters like Dolores and the schoolmaster um in order to yeah, like open them up to this kind of object world and objects possibly having lives and not just a kind of life, but a kind of life that you might actively be jealous of. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that was really important to me. And then I wanted to talk about the matriarch. Um, 
And I wanted to start by asking if you ever considered or the the idea ever crossed your mind for it to be a patriarch who led this uh, this group, or if even if like the matriarch was um, had a role still and was around, if there was ever a patriarch that that held a um, a similar status because their uncle is there, but he does not he does he is not their figurehead in this family. I was always um, more interested in the power that mothers have over their children as opposed to fathers. Um, like, I think that the, I think it's more absolute, like, as in there's, there's a kind of total physical dependency that a child has on the mother and it's very difficult to forget the memory of that. And so like, for me, at least like a mother's power has always been bound up in that memory of need and the ability to kind of to, to remind you of that, to wield guilt around this thing. And so I was much more interested in maternal power versus like paternal power. And yeah, so from the beginning, it really had to be a matriarch for me and a matriarchy. Um, but I, I do think you have the suggestion that like a patriarchy could be founded through figures like Jan and the boys. Mm -hmm. And then when the matriarch disappears, um, there's there's a scene where Agata kind of imagines herself marrying one of her brothers and being forced to have children too. Um, and that's an image of the future that terrifies her. Um, so, so I think that the patriarchy is, is like there as a threat, but I was much more interested in exploring a kind of maternal domination. I think it is interesting, like I definitely consider or think about all forms of patriarchy as a threat in some way. <laughs> but <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but uh, there, I just also thought it was like interesting from the beginning there, like you said, there's that idea of need bound into like a matrilineal um, like society, the way it continues in this story, but the cruelty is also bred into that. Um, there's a lot of passages and scenes where the matriarch is talking about how just her daughters would never love her. They would always, like, there was also a part of them that would always hate her no matter what, just because she was their mother. And it's not explored, like, so much, but in a way that I I liked because I feel, I don't know about you, but as like daughters, there is that fraught mother-daughter relationship all the time. And it's something like people are always talking about. And that wasn't, it didn't feel like catty um, or like the way we see, I'd say like in popular culture today, like that catty relationship between mothers and daughters, it felt like the stakes were so much higher here, maybe because the rest of the world had fallen away a little bit, but that was still there. Yeah, I think that I was interested in quite like um like a fundamental kind of hatred. So like the word you used innate, something as innate as just never being able to escape the fact that there is like some enmity in that bond and it's not clear why, but um I've always been really drawn to something Thomas Bernhard says in his autobiography, and this is not mothers and daughters, but I relate to it so hard, where he says that from day one he was his mother's enemy and she understood that he was her enemy. He was set against her even as an infant and they would be enemies his whole life. 
um mm-hmm. and I just thought that that was like such an interesting way of conceiving yeah. the family from day one like everyone is an enemy from the very beginning it definitely it felt that way but then it and it like we talked about how the cruelty is kind of a a backdrop that they have grown up in and don't see much besides that like that idea goes down from the matriarch herself to everyone that has come after her and they all treat each other that way they all seem to think that despite the fact that they have to continue on that on some base level they are still all enemies um which is such a an interesting like dichotomy to to put them in where they're trying they need each other to survive um but they hate each other so much both in spite and because of that in spite of and because of that yeah I I think it's one of um like the the biggest tragedies of the novel is that you have this figure the matriarch who is so determined to begin life again and so determined to forge this future and you also have the sense that she was like deeply affected by her own family experience which we learn was one of total negativity though we never learn Mm much about the reasons behind that it's kept just as mysterious as the cataclysm that has destroyed their world um but she's incapable of creating the kind of family that she wants like mm-hmm. because on some level she does want to have a family that's real like a family that's predicated on love and not this imperative to continue but she's so she's so set on con- continuity and this kind of mad vision of species destiny and so determined to maintain her power over those over her children that she's never she's never like allowed for the possibility of love and like the possibility of a family as a as a positive enterprise in another sense um and so so it's just this very strange trap that they find themselves in you mentioned uh some different like ideas that have always sort of been in your head or that you've always thought about that kind of made their way into this story or inspired it a lot so I was curious if there was any like research you did while you were writing or while you were walking around Prague in the summer and it was empty if there were any sort of discoveries that you had or things that surprised you while you were either researching or like things that came up while you were writing that were ideas you found interesting or that kind of inspired the way you think now even after having written the book and finished it if there's ideas you have that came out of it I feel like um the DeLorean isn't a very research-based book um and that's interesting to me because so many of the images and characters felt like things I already had I never really had to stretch myself to invent anything about them like I would never ask myself complicated questions about them I would just I would just know like it felt everything felt so obvious to me like of course the matriarch wears sunglasses of course she wants humanity to continue of course the schoolmaster wants to be a moth um but I think something of that has to do with first novels that like a lot of what you're drawing on or at least in my case when you're writing your first book is stuff from your own life no matter how transfigured so I think one of the things that surprised me when I was writing it is that it's so strange and it's so distant and the characters are so extreme but 
later, like after having written it, I would look back and I would see things in the Deloriad and be like, oh, you wrote this because of this, or like this connects to this person or this connects to this experience. So it was strange because I felt like I was writing something so bizarre and so distant, but then at the end, I could really see like how deeply personal a lot of it was, even though it doesn't look that way at all, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you and you said like it's it's things you you pull from your life and then they're slightly transfigured. And as you were saying that, I was thinking like the I if you read either the description and uh, or you like think about the the main like descriptors of the story. If you were try to if you were to try to explain it to someone, it sound it almost sounds like fantastical or surreal. But so much it's it's very grounded in reality. <laughs> sort of to a certain extent like there's nothing there's nothing um like you said it's it's bizarre and their circumstances are something different than what we are currently experiencing but also this this story could be playing out in a forest somewhere right now it could be <laughs> well that's kind of terrifying to think of yeah uh, <laughs> But I, I think that's because that it's like I was interested in extreme metaphor and creating something that felt very distant, but at the same time, like it's very much about the family and things that can happen in the family. So it's it's strange to me because it, it functions on two very different levels. And one is like post-apocalyptic disaster, like everything is like so extreme and so hyperviolent and yeah so distant from our everyday experience but then a lot of the things that the characters experience are, are are things that we all experience like jealousy fear and um these problems within the family and like this this lack of a sense of purpose um and so it's yeah it's it's bizarre i feel like it's simultaneously like very distant and very close no it, it absolutely is and i think it's also one of like i said i've I had finished reading it and then like talking about it uh, will bring up more of those ideas. I feel like it's the kind of book that you could talk about in bits and pieces and you, you're constantly coming back to all of these big ideas about human existence. And that's why I thought it was such a, an interesting and engaging read. And I, it's the, I think it's like the perfect book club book. <laughs> everyone will have like a very different opinion yeah and it's so like a different opinion but also um like it's the kind of story that that opens conversations in that way I think that a lot of um people either are afraid to have these big conversations or don't want to and are just trying to like exist in the moment as they are but then there are some people who are like the matriarch and are trying to figure out what comes next. So that, I mean, as simple as that, as a people who look forward and people who are living in the moment, do you live in the moment or are you hyper-focused on how we get to where we're going next or making sure that you survive? There's a lot of ego in her, uh, in her ideas. Um, but then also, Oh, I think I wrote it down because there was one point where I had, I had no sympathy for her, you know, at all. I didn't, I wasn't, I was just like, I don't, I don't care about what you're, I care about what you're doing, but I, 
I don't know if I could ever be on your side. I don't know if it's worth it, if this is the cost. Um, and then there was one, there was one point um, where I'm not, I'm not sure where it was, but there was one point where I, I read that a sentence and I was like, oh, she did it. I was, I had sympathy for her for one little tiny second. It might've been during her, um, like when she was talking about her, her life before. And I, I just had this one moment of like, like you said, you don't tell us a lot about how she got here. It's still kind of shrouded in mystery, but that it was enough that the same way we need to think about the idea that like we don't know what anyone is going through or what they have gone through and to like sit and judge them based on their current decisions there are always repercussions to that too that's interesting um I see so wait what was the moment where you had sympathy for her when she was talking about her past I think so. It might've been, it was, it was towards the end and I was like getting there and I was like, not gonna, I was like, I'm not gonna have cared about her at all. Like, I don't agree with her. I don't agree with her choices and all these things. And there was one moment and might, I think it had to have been, uh, her past. I think actually, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but I think it was maybe when she got to the uh, the place that she escaped to. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think that her, her experience is very sad. Um, but it was it was important to me when I was writing these characters because I am aware that a lot of the characters in the Deloriad are like very repulsive, like they're violent people who do horrible things. Um, but it was important to me that the reader would be able to feel sympathy for them too, and to have those moments where they can understand their decisions and, and the things that have motivated them, like why they're stuck being this way. Um, and so it's it's good. It makes me happy that you had sympathy for the matriarch. <laughs> yeah, no, like at that, at that point, um... I think it is when when she gets to that place uh, after she disappears. Um, and also like, I think there's definitely points where I felt sympathy for uh, the schoolmaster um, because like we talked about earlier, how he, his idea of, of continuing life does not align with the matriarchs and her family. So like he may be interested in continuing life, but being, but that, that option being your only option um there's definitely like sympathy in that that you're not necessarily ready to give up but you don't agree with the only option you have so you're not sure what to do at that point um and then so much of the of the siblings too like when some of them meet their fates and really anytime anyone is in a wheelbarrow that is a great opening image like for whoever ends up in the wheelbarrow knowing that they are headed somewhere and not knowing whether or not they're going to come back there there is definitely um sympathy evoked there and like you said with Dolores especially um once she gains a little bit of agency I also like I was so happy for her <laughs> um which um, yeah, yeah there's the 
No, sorry, you continue. I, I'm really bad at seeing when the cue to talk is. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I, I am. I talk as I'm thinking and think as I'm talking. <laughs> so I'm always in the middle of it, but I think I was done. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, like, it's always really interesting to me, like, what characters people identify with in the Deloriad. Like, whenever one of my friends has read it, I've been like, oh, so which character did you think you were most like? Which is probably an aggressive question to ask about this book, <laughs> because all the characters are so horrible. <laughs> Um, but yeah, people's answers always, always, um, surprise me. You, you asked me like whether I saw myself as kind of somebody who enjoyed the present moment or strove. Um, I think I identify like most strongly with the schoolmaster who's like quite actively mm -hmm. anti-life. Like he's like, let mm -hmm. this thing end, I've had enough. Um, I think he's my natural counterpart in the book. Um, I don't identify with the matriarch. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of wish I... No, I don't wish I did, but um, I think, yeah, I think I'm the schoolmaster. Well, she also, I mean, I, I don't want to identify with her either, but I think you have to like admire her, her strength and resolve in some ways. I mean, that I think it's uh, anyone who has been through something or anything terrible, like the, the fact of surviving, um, I think is admirable on any level. So you can like, you can admire her for that. I don't want to be like her either. <laughs> I mean, maybe the only thing maybe is sitting with my sunglasses on in a tall tower, watching everybody <laughs> from above, maybe. Um, but I also, I think I could, I could see myself as the schoolmaster too, a little bit just in the, there was also, uh, there was another thing of his that I thought was interesting, which was the um, the idea of mystifying knowledge um, and like the fact that he was around. And so people at a certain point started um, like thinking that he may have answers because he was always talking about knowledge um, and things, but so mystifying knowledge, but not knowing what you're actually looking for, just thinking that knowledge is the answer or will hold answers even if you don't know what they are or or what they could even be you don't even know where to start but that knowledge is the answer yeah I think that there's like um there's like deliberately like a huge disjunct between the things that the adult characters know and the children know and one of the reasons why like the scenes of education like I want to convey I'm sticking quotation marks around education because what they love <laughs> education. um one of the reasons why the contrasts are so absurd the schoolmaster is teaching them like Aquinas Hesiod like he's teaching them things which are so impossibly old and completely irrelevant towards their lives like their <laughs> the knowledge that he gives them is a total sham and there's like kind of a conceit threaded through which is that the children repeat this information like one of a martyr is capable of translating from Latin just like on the spot but they never understand the things that they're saying they don't understand the stories that they speak and I really wanted to kind of stress that gap between the older group and the younger group and to think about the ways like within the space of a family but within the space of anything how power can function through like the depriving not just of knowledge but of language and 
by depriving people of those things, um, like cut short the possibility of rebellion. Because it's also mm -hmm. when the schoolmaster talks about mystifying knowledge, but the matriarch talks about how she's deprived her children of tools so they can't articulate their discontent with her. Um, so I think I think throughout the novel, there's this there's a big concern with like how people pretend to give something but withhold at the same time, and the way that power is bound up in knowledge and language. And then we talked about early on how a lot of your ideas that you had had and after writing specifically, you can look back at the DeLorean and think like, oh, that wasn't some like mystical dream I had, like that idea was grounded in this thing I did or saw or knew. And so now that you have finished your first book and it is out in the world, do you want to keep writing more books? Do you have ideas for uh, new stories or do you think that you will live some life and see what those experiences translate into now? Um, I think I want to write something that's like a lot more lighthearted than the DeLoread. <laughs> um, like, um, I'm interested, I'm, I'm still interested in kind of like enclosed worlds within cities that sounds so specific but instead of an empty city I'd like to write about like um, a very jaded city full of full mm -hmm. of like ridiculous academics and obsessive <laughs> and I'm, I'm interested in the dynamic of teaching like I'm still in my short stories I've been I've been writing about things like that but every single thing I write there's always uh, a schoolmaster character and there's always a <laughs> Laura's characters so I, I think even though they're even though they are very different but I think I'm still interested in the same things but I definitely want to write something um a lot happier <laughs> and what uh we love to ask everyone what have you been reading or watching or uh or anything that has been filling you up that you've been really enjoying um, I just finished reading Olga Raven's The Employees, um, which I thought was really amazing. And um, I was like super interested in how she deals with objects. Like I, I think that she's like a writer who's really interested in hierarchies between people, animals and things. And um, yeah, I found it super interesting what she was doing. Well, I am so excited for, by the time this uh, comes out, the DeLoread will be out, out, and it will be on the shelves at Skylight. So all of our listeners can stop by and pick up a copy or they can order one online at skylightbooks.com. And for all of our listeners, my guest today was Missouri Williams, and we were talking about her debut novel, The DeLoread. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me, Missouri. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>